Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. While you're turning there, you can, uh, you can find a uh, uh, sermon notes insert uh, in your bulletin where you can uh, follow along as we continue in our series uh, that we've entitled... Uh, the amazing change. We've been looking at uh, Acts 9 for uh, about the last month. We're in part three now in this series where we look at uh, a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a man we learned in week one who hated Christianity. His main goal in life, his main purpose in life uh, was to go out and uh, uh, destroy the way of Christianity. He would go uh, to uh, the temples and to the synagogues to find out uh, who um, followed Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, would then uh, take them and imprison them, beat them, and we, as we learned in uh, Acts 7 and Acts 8, uh, that he would go as far as to give approval to their death as he did uh, with the man uh, Stephen, a man who was full of faith. So we looked at the flawed standing of Saul, and Saul was on his journey, we learned a couple weeks ago, on his way to Damascus to do the very thing that he was set out to do, and that was to go and find Christians in Damascus, to take them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and imprison them uh, as a result of their worship and religion towards Jesus Christ. But something happened on that trip, about a little more than halfway, many uh, commentators believe, that... uh, Saul was walking this path with some companions and all of a sudden, without him ever anticipating anything like this, a bright light shines down from heaven and a voice calls out from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We would learn that that is Jesus, the resurrected Christ who is standing in heaven and he is articulating to Saul that what Saul was doing was wrong and that Jesus, the one he was trying to destroy... The faith that he was trying to take away from individuals was the one that would, in fact, save him. At that moment, we see Saul's life changes dramatically. And we looked a couple weeks ago and then even last week at the faith that Saul had in his Savior. Now, we've looked at a flawed standing. We've looked at faith in a Savior. And now, for the rest of the time, as we look at Saul's conversion to Christianity, we're going to look at how he displayed that faith, how he displayed that life change uh, in the years that would come after that. I began to think about uh, this question. What is it about us that tells the world there's been life change within us? When you go to work, do you uh, have a sense that people know, just as in Saul's life, that there's been a life change that has taken place? If your uh, employees or uh, employer or fellow employees were to look at your life, would they say, wow, Tim has met Jesus? Would they even, even if they didn't say wow, if it was more of a negative, would they say there's something about Tim or, or place your name in there, there's something about him that's different? What do people around you think when you speak about life change? Would they say that your life is full of evidences that show that your life is somehow different than the world around you? It seems that in Saul's uh, conversion story, that if we were just to stop 
in Acts 9 when he falls down to the ground and, and, and says, Lord, what will you have for me to do? What do you want of me? If we were to stop there, then we would never understand how Saul displayed the life change that he had. And yet that's where many of us as Christians stop our story. I talked last week about the importance of moving beyond just the conversion experience. And in fact, uh, George Barna and his study group uh, did a study just a couple of years ago looking at the lives of evangelical Christians on one side and then also looking at the lives of non-church-going uh, individuals. And while each of them had a position on this issue of conversion, we had the group that said they were born again, and then we had others that said that they were not born again. The amazing thing is, is while they were at separate ends of the spectrum on the conversion experience, some had experienced it, some had not, that as you moved towards the times after that conversion for the evangelical Christian, it moved closer and closer and closer to being just like the ones who said they've never experienced that conversion ever before. What that means is, is we as Christians who say that we have experienced the new birth, find ourselves falling to the same sins, find us falling to the same sins as frequently as our non-believing friends and neighbors. We see the rate of uh, divorce and marriages amongst Christians and non-Christians to be about the same. We find ourselves struggling with the identical things. And, and we got to come to an understanding that why is it that this happens? There are two things that I wrote down in my notes uh, that I began to think about. There are two, things why, two reasons why this happens. Number one, we have an enemy. We have an enemy, and that enemy is uh, the devil. Now, the devil's desire, the devil's job is to take uh, anyone uh, who has experienced a new birth and to try to trip them up. And, and if he can't trip them up, to try to lull them to bed uh, so they won't do anything beyond uh, accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So, so what then are we to do with that? Well, we are to understand we have an enemy who roams around the world seeking who he may uh, devour, Peter tells us. But many times we put a lot more credit in the devil's hands than he should have. Because I would contend this morning that it's not so much the devil's fault on why we as Christians who experience the new birth live the same way as those who don't experience it. The real reason, I believe, is that we do not give ourselves fully over to Jesus Christ the day after that conversion experience. See, the most important thing we, we think when we talk, and one of the reasons why I did this series was because we put so much focus on the bright light, the, the blinding of Saul. We put it on the Damascus Road experience, but yet that's not what uh, defined Saul and, and later Paul. That's not what, what made him the apostle that, that he was going to be, to go and to reach out to the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the things that happened directly as a result of that conversion experience. And for the next five weeks, we're going to look at five things that Saul made a part of his life and in doing so displayed to the world that he was no longer going to be Saul, the killer of Christians, but he would be Paul, the great herald, the great apostle of Christ. Well, the first thing that we see is in our text this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand as we read uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. And then go through verse 11. Acts chapter 9 starts 
like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Why do he ask that? Luke goes on and says, So that if any there would belong to the way, that's Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, saying, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we come before you as a people who have experienced the new birth. Lord, you have rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into your wonderful light. And Lord, now you ask for obedience. Now you ask for submission. Now you ask for us to uh, turn our affections upon you as you have taken out the stony heart that is within us and and turned it into a a fleshy heart, one that can be moldable and shapeable, uh, one that can now pursue you uh, with all fervor and desire. Uh, But Lord, so many times we find ourselves not turning to you. So many times we find ourselves pursuing the things of this world that, that Lord, in this day of age that we see and we live in today, we find ourselves living no different than the world around us. Oh, Lord, we have a different creed, but our conduct is the same. Lord, we have a different set of beliefs, but our behavior remains unchanged. Father, change that in us today. Lord, let us not live in the status quo. Lord, that, that we would be a people that are set apart, that are, are different as a result of, of our experience of, of seeing you high and lifted up. Lord, for some of us, this would be a whole new way of living. For some of us who put our stock in, in an experience long ago where no life change has taken place, Lord, Ignite the hearts of those this morning who once and for all would give themselves wholly over to you. That, Lord, just like Saul, there would be an incredible change that takes place. That we would go from, just as Saul did, uh, breathing out murderous threats to just 11 verses later to say, he is praying. Oh, Lord, let us be a people who pray. Let us be a people who do not uh, sit and and, uh, talk and, and speculate about the world around us, but let us be people who are driven to our knees. Uh, Let us be a church that is driven to its knees, not just to, to pray prayers, but Lord, to cry out to our Father and God in heaven, 
knowing that you will hear us and that you are God that answers prayer. So Lord, uh, be with us this morning as we open your word, as we look to what your word says, that we will be changed as a result of what we learn today. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Jesus Christ reveals himself to Saul. Saul is blinded, thrown to the ground. And what transpires in the next couple moments is is something that many times in this text we gloss right over. Saul is lifted up from the ground. He opens his eyes and he finds out that he no longer can see. The brilliance of the light that he saw blinded him. And what is he told to do? He's told to head to Damascus. So his counterparts become, his companions become those who now become his guide. They take him into uh, Damascus. They've placed him in a home. We learn later on that it's on Straight Street, which is still a street in the city of Damascus, which is, of course, in present-day Syria. And it says in verse 9, notice what transpires for the next three days. For three days Saul was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Well, what is he doing then? If he's not eating, if he's not drinking, if he's now a recently blinded individual, what is he doing? The text would later tell us in verse 11 that he's praying. I talked about last week uh, the importance as we come to know Christ that it's important to understand conviction of sin. It's also under, it's important to understand the conversion by the Spirit. Uh, but one thing I didn't uh, have time to talk with you about is communion with our Savior communion with our Savior for three days after coming to know Jesus, after bowing the knee to Jesus, Saul gets quiet. Saul goes by himself. Saul doesn't eat or drink, meaning he doesn't go on with the way things are normally happening in a regular day. He goes and he quiets his heart. And our text in the NIV says, for he is praying. I remember telling my wife this last week, what do you do with four words for a text? For he is praying. And yet I'm amazed by what the Lord has uh, shown me through the study. Because in our reading of the conversion experience of Saul, we will go right beyond this passage. We'll scoot on by that and we'll get to the other things, whether it's the conversion in the first part of uh, chapter 9, we'll find ourselves talking about when he's introduced to the other disciples, when he's baptized. Those are the headlining things. And yet in the middle of this passage, I believe, is the glue that begins to connect Saul's conversion experience to the process of sanctification that Paul would have in his life. For three days, it says, he is praying. That's what I want to focus in on this morning because in our title, fervent supplication, fervent means passionate. Supplication is a, another name for prayer. Paul, Saul in his experience, became one who was passionate about prayer. If we want life change to transpire in our lives, if we want to be of any use for God, then we must be like Saul and be passionate about prayer I have three very quick opening statements about prayer that I want us to look at. And the first one is, in your outlines, that one of the marks of a truly born-again individual is prayer. 
One of the marks of the truly born again, saved individuals is prayer. Now, prayer is not just a requirement. Prayer is a necessary response to salvation. Let me explain that for a moment. If you call yourself an an individual who is born again, if you've experienced life change, then one of the first questions you must ask is, do I pray? Do I pray? Now you say, Tim, come on. Not everybody is a prayer warrior. Not everybody has the ability uh, to pray. And I thought about that for a couple moments as I was writing these uh, down. And I thought about me uh, marrying Amanda. I get into this relationship with my wife, Amanda. And what if I told you that we don't talk? We don't say a word to one another. We're married, but we have no need to communicate. There's no need to find out what what she wants or what she desires, how she's feeling uh, in anything. It's not important. You would say the same thing, that that if you're going to be married, one of the marks of a married individual with their spouse is they're going to communicate. That it's not just a requirement, but it's a response. If If you're married, you would think that one of your responses to your spouse would be you would talk with them. But notice what is said next. Prayer is not something Christians have to be begged to do. If people are really born again, they will pray. Write that down. Prayer is not something Christians should have to be begged to do. So if people are really born again, they will pray. If I'm not required to talk to my wife, you would think, well, then I I wouldn't talk to my wife. If there's no requirement that when we got married, uh, there was nothing that says make sure you, you have a conversation with Amanda every day, Tim. That's your requirement. No one had to tell me that. Why? Because it wasn't something that someone had to beg me to do. It was a natural response to the love that I have for Amanda. I want to talk with her. I want to know what she's feeling. I want to be able to hear what she has to say on a myriad of issues. And yet when it comes to us as Christians, not only is it a requirement, but we have to beg Christians to pray. Why is that? Why is it that we have to uh, tell people to pray when it seems like it would be such a natural response to one who's experienced change? Prayer should be one of the greatest desires that you have as a Christian. And if it's not, I won't say that it's It shows that you're not a Christian. I can't tell you whether or not you're saved. Only God knows the heart of a man. But I will ask the question, how serious is your relationship with your God? How intimate is that relationship? Think about whether you're uh, old or young, married, unmarried, your best friend in this world. If you never talked with them, how good of a relationship would you really have? How how intimate would that be? How deep would that relationship be? Yet we as Christians find ourselves saying that our best friend, what a friend we have in Jesus. I don't talk to him but once. Only when I'm in lots of trouble do I get on the phone and call, I don't know, heaven. It's not in the text, but we sang it. And now you know why I don't sing solos. Why do we sing that Jesus is such a friend and we don't talk to him? 
because we don't think it's all that important. I'm going to get to another reason why that is. One more word of caution about prayer. Of course, Christians need to be encouraged about praying more, which I'm doing today. Pray. And when you're done praying, pray some more. And when you're done praying more, make sure you do some more praying just to make sure you're praying enough. So we should be encouraged to pray. But the authenticity of people's faith can be determined on the basis of their fervor in supplication. Now you say, Tim, you just told us that you're not going to judge whether we're saved, and yet you in this last statement judge whether or not we're saved. I am not to judge whether or not you're saved based on what you do in private when it comes to prayer. But I'm going to ask you to test, to take the prayer test and ask the question, am I really the Christian that God wants me to be? And can I prove that with fervent prayer? Do I really want to talk with my Savior. For three days, our text says that Saul prayed. He's praying. As important as communication is to the marriage relationship, it is so much more, it is immeasurably more important that you and I have an ongoing communication with our Savior. And Saul proves that. You see, one of the amazing things that we're going to learn as we look at this thing is that in these four words that we would pass right over in the text, it speaks volumes on the importance of prayer. And that's what we want to look at for the next couple moments because if we want to be different, if we want to have life change, if we want to show the world around us that there's something different, it begins not with trying to live a holy life, not trying to preach, not trying to set um, the world straight when it comes to Jesus. Notice, Saul doesn't do any of that. There will be a time for that. But what Saul did first and foremost is he did what the Lord said. Go to Damascus so there's obedience. Wait there until I tell you what to do. Okay. What am I to do during that time? I don't know whether there was extra words that were shared by Jesus, but it seems that Saul gets it right because he gets into that home. They say, would you like some food? Would you like some drink? It seems that none of that takes place, and he prays. So what can we learn from this? If we want to be people that are, uh, are fervent or passionate about prayer, first we must remember God's announcement God's announcement about prayer. Look at what uh, the Lord says in verse 11. Again, this is God speaking. This is, uh, in fact, Jesus speaking. It's in red. When things are red in the Bible, that means Jesus is speaking. Of course, the book of Acts is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is alive, just as he is today. And he speaks to this man named Ananias, who we'll talk about next week. And he says to Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Of course, that's not Judas uh, Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus. It's a different Judas in Damascus. And asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And he announces to him, he's praying. Ananias, he's praying. Now, God is speaking to Ananias, and, and God is going to use Ananias to help Saul. And it's here that God tells us what Saul is doing. He's praying. Now, there's a sense in the original that there's an announcement that is made. In fact, the King James uh, Version translates this as, behold, he is praying. 
And many older commentaries and commentators uh, say that this is a grand announcement. Saul, the, the killer and, and hater of Christianity, he's praying. And uh, like Matthew Henry, one of the older commentaries, writes uh, volumes on this statement, this grand announcement. He talks about how the angels in heaven were uh, uh, playing their harps and announcing, and he has a grand way of doing this, that behold, Saul is praying. The, The man who we just read had murderous threats against Christianity, now is praying. But as we look at newer uh, understandings of the text, as we begin to discern even better with the uh, interpretation and translation of it, we see that it seems to be toned down in the NIV. Not behold, but it's simply just a word that is to uh, grab the attention of the individual, not in any uh, huge way, but simply put, Saul is praying. He's changed. There's a difference. What are we to learn from this in our text? The first thing I want you to understand about this announcement is that it is necessary, it is necessary to be involved in prayer if you want to be a part of vibrant Christianity. Prayer is necessary for vibrant Christianity. When one looks at Saul slash Paul, that's the same individual, one before his encounter with Jesus, Paul, his name after it, we see a man of greatness, This man had the greatest abilities like preaching. He had an amazing ability to lead. He had an amazing ability uh, to live uh, with plenty, but also to live in lack. This guy had it going on. In fact, many would say that uh, Paul is the greatest man to live of all ages, second only to the person of Jesus Christ. This guy is great. He wrote great things. In fact, he wrote more of the uh, New Testament than any other writer. And yet for all of those things that made him great, his preaching made him great, his writing made him great, his leadership made him great, what made him be the kind of individual that God wanted him to be? I want to do a quick survey of the scriptures starting in the book of Acts. I'm sorry, starting, go from Acts to your right to the book of Romans, which is just beyond the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1. We're going to go through this very quickly. Romans 1, verses 8 through 10. What made uh, Paul great? We're going to learn in his own writings, from his own hand, what he says. Romans 1, 8 uh, through 10. Notice what he says to the Romans in his first chapter to them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you. What are the next three words? In my prayers. At all times. He's saying God's my witness. I pray a lot. I pray a lot because I am a hearing of the faith that you have and how it's impacting the world around us. Go to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. You're just going to keep going past the 16 chapters of Romans, and you're going to find the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. Notice what he says. He gives a, uh, a prayer of thanksgiving to these individuals right away. And he says, I am always thanking God for you because of His grace given you 
in Christ Jesus. This is part of his salutation. He'll always seem to find grace, peace, and love to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds another aspect of a prayer. In verse 3, he starts with praising the Lord, thanking the Lord. In verse 4, he goes on to say, because of the grace that's been given to you. He goes on, check in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. Your 1 Corinthians, the next book will be 2 Corinthians. I do this so you guys will learn the New Testament as we go through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Look at what it says in verse 10. Speaking of God, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that that He will continue to deliver us as you have helped us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now, this is our boast. Our consciences testify that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in holiness and sincerity that are from God. Uh, We have done so not according to the worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood in our part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's stop there for a second. What is he talking about there? He's saying, hey, uh, we've done what we're supposed to do. We've taken care of it. We've done, we've, we've lived the way we're supposed to live so that the name of God would be glorified, that, that as they look at our faith, something uh, would be different in the way we lead you. Well, how do they get there? Notice what then he says in Philippians. Turn, you're going to go through a couple books of the Bible there to your right. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. How does he do it? There's a couple words I want you to see in this text, Philippians 1, 3, and 4. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Meaning, the moment that the Philippians came to mind, uh, Paul would go and he would pray. I thank God every time you're brought to my uh, memory. And he says, I always pray with joy. He's excited about it. Why? Because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The reason why Paul lived the way he lived was because he was driven by this understanding that prayer was of great importance. We see it in another passage, Colossians 1.3. I'll just continue moving on. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. I could keep going. First Thessalonians 1, 2, and 11. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and verse 8. Philemon uh, chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Philemon. Uh, verses 4 and 6 tell us, why is Paul the man that he is? Why is Paul so excited about pursuing Jesus Christ? Why is Paul so excited about making sure others hear the gospel? It is because Saul early on in his life learned that it was important that he pray. 
So how did he begin to know and understand and discern these things? It was found because he spent time praying. So it's necessary. It was necessary for him to do it. Notice the next thing we see in uh, verse 11 of Acts 9. The next thing we see, uh, for he is praying, reminds us of something. And that is prayer is noticed by God. Jesus Christ is speaking to Ananias and he says, Hey, Saul's praying. Now this may be a grade school observation, but many times those are the most impacting. And that is the following. God hears our prayers. When you get on your knee or when you are in your classroom or you are uh, in the car or in church and you pray, it is noticed by God. God hears our prayers. He knows that we are praying. And as a result of that, Proverbs 15, 29 reminds us that the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears you. Understand that amidst the billions of people on this great globe that we call the planet Earth, God is listening to your prayers. He has turned his ear to hear you, and he does. Now, whether we know what to pray or what we don't know, if we don't know what to pray for, God takes care of that. In fact, the Spirit is even now groaning, the book of Romans says, in a a language we wouldn't even understand. And what is he doing? He's praying for us. He's interceding even on the things that we don't know what we should be praying for. We're praying for uh, a certain uh, team to win in a certain game. And and the Holy Spirit's saying, okay, well, they're praying for that. That's not all that important. So let me pray for the important things, the things that are most important to that individual's walk with God. So even when we don't know what to pray for, our prayers are being noticed because the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Notice the next thing that we see in verse 11. For he is praying. What do we learn? This phrase tells us that prayer can be a new thing. It's new even to the most religious. Had Saul prayed before? Yes. Was this a first-time experience? No. Saul was a Pharisee. That was their job. They were to pray. Of course Saul would be praying, but why is there this uh, declaration that that Saul is praying? It's because this is the first time that God actually is listening to Saul. And you may say, whoa, wait a minute. Remember what Proverbs says? The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. What prayers are heard by God? The prayers of the righteous. Does that mean that God is not listening to the prayers of our neighbors and friends who have uh, uh, not trusted Christ as their Savior? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know if that proverb is a doctrinal statement on God's uh, prayer that he listens to and he doesn't. But I will tell you this. You want to know if God's listening to your prayers? You bow the knee to Jesus Christ and just set it straight right now. Bow the knee to Jesus. You want God to hear your prayers? Then understand what the proverb says. If you're wicked, he's not going to listen. If you are righteous, and not because of the righteous things we do, but if we bow the knee in faith, give ourselves over to Jesus Christ, then we can know that our prayers will be answered. Now, I wonder, Luke is the writer of Acts. I wonder if Luke was thinking back to his own writings in Luke 18. Turn there for a moment. Because this is not something new for Saul, he had prayed before. 
But what kind of prayers had he prayed? Luke chapter 18, Luke tells us something about the prayers that he may have prayed. And I wonder in, in, in Acts chapter uh, 9 if, if he's thinking back to this and saying, man, I, maybe this is who Jesus was talking about in Luke 18 uh, verse 9. A lot of you know this uh, passage of Scripture, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What was Saul? He was a Pharisee. It says, not two, some who were confident of their own righteousness, that sounds like Saul, who looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like Keith, who's a robber, like Rich, who's an evildoer. Or even like that Ray Pergodich who works for the IRS. Can I get an amen? I'm kidding, Ray. How am I not like them? I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I wonder if that's how Saul prayed. If he was an average Pharisee, there's a good chance he probably was at that time because that's what they were thinking. That's part of the reason why Jesus is giving this parable. Is that how Saul was praying for those three days? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like uh, this Judas who's opened up his house. I'm not like those Christians who are evil, who, who put themselves fully on the grace of God for their sins to be taken care of. I'm glad I, I go to temple and atone for my own sins. I take care of that on my own. I wonder if that's how he prayed. But then I think about it and I think, well, probably not. That's how he would have prayed on the way to Damascus. But once he got to Damascus, I wonder if he started to pray like the next guy in Luke 18. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think that's how Saul was praying in that house. And here's the amazing thing that I pull from this. For many of us, we pray. We pray as Christians. We may even pray for the right things. But isn't there always a little Pharisee in us when we pray? Lord, I'm glad I'm not like them. Lord, I'm glad I don't have the language that they do. Lord, I'm glad that I haven't done this, that, or the other thing. Well, we may not pray that way. That would be a pretty blatant prayer, wouldn't it? But yet many times we think that way. And it's amazing, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It'll come up in our prayers. It'll come up at some time. Saul, for the first time, goes low. God brought him low. And he finds himself, it would seem praying for three days. When was the last time you got serious about prayer? Not prayer that is just rote. And you'd say, well, Tim, of course, we're not Roman Catholic. We don't, we don't have uh, rote prayers. We do. It's very easy to get into rote prayers. I've been teaching my children how to pray. And as I watch my two sons who are able to uh, understand and discern what prayer is, they pray a very similar prayer. And I wonder how much of my prayers are learned way back when I was three, four, five years of age. I don't think that's what Saul was praying. I think Saul opened up his heart and he said, all right, Jesus, I've met you and I have no idea what you're going to do to me. 
I, I've been going around trying to destroy you, and, and now you have taken me captive, so what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to give myself over to you, Lord, don't destroy me, Lord, don't hurt me, Lord, uh, I'll do whatever you want. That seems like the prayers that he was answering. Now notice the, the next thing that would happen. It was a new experience, and it seemed like nonsense. Ananias hears this. Saul's praying. That doesn't sound right. Saul, this Saul of Tarsus, he's praying. That seems like nonsense. Why would Saul of Tarsus be praying and why would, uh, why would Jesus bring it up? Understand this. The subject of prayer is something that we need to understand. It's going to be nonsense to individuals. I was watching a comedian slash political pundit named Bill Maher and he was on the Larry King show. And he said to Larry King, one thing I just don't get is these Christians that pray. Don't they know they're just talking to themselves and that we have a lot more uh, mentally unstable individuals if we would just bring in the evangelical Christians into the mix? Because we would call anybody crazy who prays or who uh, talks to themselves. Let me tell you something, Bill Maher. There's going to be a day where you are going to stand before God. And you're going, to knee, you're going to go to your knees because you're going to see Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be people talking to themselves, but you're going to meet Jesus. But understand this. When we pray, people are going to look at us and say, what are you doing? I give you a test. When you go out to Chili's this afternoon after your service, pray. And then open your eyes, not for long, because that's a sin. Um, and look at what people are doing. My brother, one time when we were uh, at a uh, restaurant, my brother is a preacher from early on. I was one of abnormal birth. I am abnormal. He one day when we were going to pray as a family at a restaurant, it was too noisy in the room and my brother Joel got up and said, can everybody be quiet? We're trying to pray. <laughs> Joel doesn't always have the best tact when it comes to sharing his faith. But you know what? I didn't close my eyes one bit. I wanted to see what people were doing. And there were a lot of weird looks. Prayer is a practice that's going to be nonsense to the individuals. Now notice the second thing. We're going to move quickly through these. First part's the most important, but there's some other things we need to understand. Recognize the proper attitude for prayer. As we look at the text, we see four words that speak about it. He is praying. Well, where's the attitude in that, you say, Tim? But well, we recognize, well, in verse 9, no food, no water, but prayer. Meaning, I don't care about the things of this world. Let me just go and pray. Well, why would he do that? We see later on that this is a passion that uh, Paul would have. And this passion involves, first of all, an opportunity to commune with God. Saul is driven to the ground. He's seen Jesus. He's blinded. And he goes and he waits. Remember, Jesus said, wait until you uh, are told what to do. Those three days must have been an eternity to him. Is God going to destroy me? Is God going to love me? What is God going to do? When is Jesus going to show up? And what is his response going to be? So Saul goes to God and he begins to commune with God. It's an opportunity to commune with God. Well, what was happening in that time of communion? No doubt he was confessing sin and seeking forgiveness and also praying for mercy for his life. It would seem that in Saul's life, those would be the three biggest things that he would be doing. Lord, I'm sorry I didn't see you as the Savior and Lord. Lord, I'm sorry that I pursued the people that love you 
And that even put to death, I wonder if that whole issue with Stephen was being brought front and center. Lord, I can't believe I allowed a good man like Stephen, your follower, to be put to death. Lord, have mercy on my soul. What an opportunity to commune with God. Do we recognize in our times of prayer that this is an opportunity to commune with our God? Whether we're in the car, we can commune with God. Whether we're in a group of people or by ourselves, we can commune with God. Whether we're in a company of friends or in the presence of enemies, we can commune with God. Whether we find ourselves in the solitude of a nice wooded area or in the hustle and bustle of any grand city, we can commune with God. Saul understood this. He would later understand it, whether in chains or whether in the church, he could commune with God. Do you see that as a relationship builder? As you go to prayer, that you would say, Lord, I want to spend time with you. Lord, I want to hear from you. Lord, speak to me. It's an opportunity to commune. Next, it reminds us that God is in control. You want to have a proper attitude? Commune with God. Have a desire to be a part of that relationship. And then have the proper attitude that says, it ain't about me. Notice in the text that we don't hear anything happening except he's praying. God's in control. Why is God in control? Because God stops him on his journey. God blinds him. And now he finds himself in a house of people he'd never met before. And as a result of that, he's waiting on God. Do you think Saul at that moment was saying, you know what, I'm out of control right now. God is in control. The passion that Saul had for prayer came from his understanding that God is in control. God, uh, sorry, Saul recognized that God was the one who was going to see everything from beginning and end take place. See, that's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be thinking. But the problem is, is when we pray, we don't pray specifically enough. And so we ask these, uh, Lord, I pray that you will bring um, uh, world peace. And we wake up and we say, well, world peace didn't happen, so that prayer hasn't been answered yet. Lord, I pray that you will keep uh, Village Bible Church healthy. Well, that's a great prayer, except it, what does that mean? I'll give you an example. We were in a small group one time. Here at church, over at John and Karen Elwood's house, a man came into our church. He, they, they don't attend here anymore. His name was Ken Marino. And Ken comes in, and Ken was a quiet guy, and so his wife had to say why Ken was even more quiet than he normally is. And Sally says, Ken lost his job, and we really need money, and we really need Ken to start working by this Monday. But there's nothing out there. There's no business. It's slow. We're never going to find anything. And so uh, my faithful assistant at the time, John Elwood, said, hey, we should pray. I said, that's a good idea, John. Let's pray. And we prayed. We prayed specifically, Lord, let's get a job for John. Or for Ken. John had a job. The Lord answers prayer. No, what happens? While we're praying, I kid you not, you'll say this sounds like Christian television. While we were praying, Ken's phone rings. Uh, Ken, this is such and such company. We're loaded up with work. We heard you just lost your job. Can you start on Monday? The Lord answers prayer, doesn't he? But we have to be specific about it. So we can look and everybody kind of had some goosebumps on them and woo, you know, and it was like, do we even do the, the message or the, the book today? And I said, this is a good time to just fellowship. Just to feel, bring out the cake and the coffee, and let's just sing kumbaya and thank the Lord. 
God answers prayer. We have to understand God is in control. So, so what are we to do? Once we've done that, there are three things I want you to see in my last point, and that is respond with prayers that apply biblical truth. I've told you that we need to make sure uh, that we understand why prayer is so important. Number two, we need to make sure that there's a right attitude, and the right attitude led to some right thinking. When you believe that God is one who answers prayer, that God wants to hear our prayers, that we understand that prayer is a conversation with God, then we understand that we are to commune with Him, and we under, begin to understand that we're not in control, God is. But what kind of truths are we to walk away with? Here's the application this morning. I'm going to quickly go through these things because they're just very simple understandings. If we desire to be a people of prayer, if we desire to show the world that we've had life change, then it begins by being passionate about prayer. But how are we to do that unless we understand what God's Word says about this subject? So understand, first of all, in your prayers, center on the greatness of God. When you pray... Center in on the greatness of God. Remember the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, uh, all right, this is how you pray. Lord, give me. Lord, help me. Lord, uh, take care of this or that. No, he says, our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. It's all about God. You want to pray right? You center your prayers Applying biblical truth on the greatness of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12 says the following. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are your prayers centering in on who God is, on what God has done, on the greatness of our Father in heaven? Do we pray that way? Because if we don't pray that way, the second aspect will never come, and that is confession of sin. Confession of sin. In light of God's greatness, remember the Old Testament story, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is a vision that is totally and completely God-centered and Christ-centered. And what response takes place after that? Lord, give me. Lord, help me. Lord, make sure I have this. Lord, make sure I pass this test. None of that. What happens? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. A vision that's God-centered. And what happens? He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips and I am ruined. You want to build confession into your uh, prayer life? You center on the greatness of God. Without the holiness of God, you've got nothing to confess. When you look at the holiness of God, you will find out you have everything to confess. Because God is holy. He's perfect. Center in on the greatness of God. Involve confession of sin. And finally, always remember, it's not just about your personal concerns. You know the way we look at prayer? thought about this. I was working this week and we stopped. We don't like eating our own food at 5B's. So we look for places like McDonald's and all these different places. And I'm working in the front seat, working on my message. And we're going through the drive through window. And my guy rolls down his window and says, yes, I would like to have. And he goes down this huge list of food that he wants. Give me one of these, one of these, one of these, and one of these. And I wrote down evangelicals' prayers like a drive through experience. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, uh, you're good. Sorry that I'm a sinner. Now, Lord, here's the real stuff. I need this. I need that. Uh, let's get the markets back where they need to be. Lord, maybe next year for the Cubs. Lord, um, what else am I missing? Oh, oh, you know what? Lord, I'm sorry I said that lie or I looked at that pretty girl walking down the street. Now let's get back to where we were really at because I need to make sure I butter you up a little bit so you'll give me the following. Christmas is coming, Lord, and uh, help me out to get what I want. And you say, Tim, you're being funny. I am being funny, but I think there's a lot of truth in what I'm saying. We go to God and we look at his menu of what he can do for us and we start picking and choosing. Lord, I need this. I need that. Give me a side of this and I'll take that. I pray that Village Bible Church would focus in on the two things first and center there. I've told you this. I don't want it to be something that, that is a rebuke in any way. Uh, we are known by many people around uh, our area for being a place of, of prayer. We have hundreds of people that have signed on to this prayer email that goes out. And, and I got to tell you something. While it is so important, it is so important that we bring our requests before God. That is a biblical thing. My fear is, is that I see a whole lot of the third point, not a lot of the second, first and second points. How awesome would it be if someone said, you know what? Pray that I would center myself on the greatness of God. I'm not doing that right now. How great would it be if someone said, you know what? I'm struggling with some sin. They don't have to go out and say exactly what sin it may be. It's up to them if they want to or not. We don't do that. It's important we pray for number three, but make sure we pray involving the first two points as well. Moving on, once we've done that, well, why, why are we to do that? Why are we to pray the right way? Because we recognize some things. And not only do we recognize some things as Christians, but it does some things in aiding our um, evangelism. Ananias hears that Saul is praying. What does that show? First of all, it shows dependence. It shows dependence. When you go before God, when you kneel down and you say, Lord... Lord, I need, to, I need to bring something to you. When you do that, even if you don't pray the right way, you're doing one thing, and that is showing your dependence because what you're saying is, Lord, I can't figure this out on, on my own. I can't do it without you coming through for me. It's a dependence thing. That's why our elder meetings, we start out every Monday praying. Why? Because we want to make it very clear, not just to the people around us, but to God himself, Lord, we need you to come and sit at this table. We don't have the answers. We don't have uh, the plans. And so we need you to show up. And if you don't show up, we're going to fail. If you don't show up, we're going to start thinking we've done this on our own. So Lord, show up and show up quickly because we need your help. Why don't the arrogant, why don't the prideful pray? Because they don't need God. I want you to ask the question this morning, is one of the reasons why you don't pray because you think in your life you don't need God? It's amazing what a crisis does. We become prayer warriors when a crisis hits, don't we? 9-11 takes place and everybody, pagan and Christian, let's pray. Don't worry that we don't have prayer in school. Everybody pray. Why? Because in those moments of crisis, we learn we're not God and that we need God. You go into a trench in a war, you're going to find a lot of prayer warriors because we have to be dependent in those moments. Not the good days. Good days, I can take care of it on my own. The next thing we have, throw it up there so I can remember where I'm at. It settles us in times of despair. It settles us in times of despair. Uh, it was brought up uh, this morning. Uh, be anxious about nothing, but, by, uh, but in everything, prayer and, and supplication before the Lord, presenting your request that the peace of God may transcend 
All understanding that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. When you come to the moment of crisis, when you come to the moment of struggle, remember what happened with, uh, I believe it was King Hezekiah. Uh, he's uh, sitting in his, uh, um, uh, uh, king lives in a palace, thank you. He's in his palace and he hears that the Assyrians are coming and there's 180,000 of them and they're going to destroy the city and they're mocking the Israelites and they're going to take over and they've heard the renown of the great Assyrians, the great good-looking people uh, from the Middle East. And, And what happens? Some of you got that. What happens? He prays and then he goes to sleep. You telling me you could sleep with 180,000 of your enemies surrounding you, that you'd be able to sleep? Why could this king do that? Because it was in the Lord's hands. When you come to a place of trouble in your life, pray. Give it to the Lord. Don't do what I do. Lord, please uh, take over, take control of this situation. Uh, We need money, Lord. And and so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go take care of A, B, and C, D, E, and F. If you can take care of G, we're all set. That's what we do. That's not what God is asking for us to do. What he's asking for us to do is to give it to him, be dependent on him, and then leave it. Let it settle us and begin to move on. Next point we see, as we add that it sets us in the right direction. How could Saul go and be the apostle that God had called him to be? It begins with prayer. You want to know which direction to go, whether left or right, what college to be a part of, this one or that one, what spouse to marry, this one or that one. Uh, Some of you have more options than I did. I had one. She said, yes. I said, that's the right direction. And it sets us in the right direction. When you're dependent on God, he will answer your prayer. Cry out to him. David says, when I cried out to him, he heard me. Cry out to God. Say, God, I don't know what direction I should go in. If I should turn to the left or to the right. Let God answer your question. Let God take care of it. Finally, we see three very quick things. And that is is a reminder that we need to understand from Saul's example. First of all, that uh, God's answers aren't always immediate. Saul prayed three days. Three days unknowing what was going to happen. Maybe you're praying today and God hasn't answered your prayer and you've given up on God. Understand this. God's answers are not always immediate. They're not always immediate. They take time. Well, why do they take time? My second point, they impact others. Don't think you're the only person in this world. You pray, Lord, I need this, that, or the other thing. Saul was praying, Lord, probably, Lord, I want sight back. Why won't you just give me my sight back? All you have to do is just, just, uh, I can't, you snap your fingers and then it's all taken care of. But that's not how God was working. What was God doing? God's working on the other side of Damascus with this guy named Ananias. And he's saying, Ananias, I I have a place for you. In fact, you've been around all this time. We're never going to hear much about you except when Paul talks about you later about his story. Never again will we hear about Ananias after that point. And what does God do? God uses him. Yo, Ananias, wake up. Let me tell you something. There's a guy from Tarsus named Saul. He, he, he has, he's blind. I need you to go back and restore his sight. Do you ever realize that the prayer, the answer that you're looking for in prayer may mean that someone else is going to have to be obedient to God to bring that prayer to reality? You know, when we pray and ask for the Lord to take care of, of uh, financial needs, we, we found ourselves really far behind uh, early a part of this year. And I received a letter from an individual from our congregation, anonymous. And it said that while you were praying, we believe your prayers as a church 
was God working on our spirit to give a whole lot more than what we were giving now. And so we were praying and saying, Lord, why won't you answer? Lord, why won't you answer? Lord, why won't you answer? And every time we would pray for that, the Lord was using that and saying, all right, hey, okay, I want you to give. Did you hear me? I want you to give. And we're sitting there saying, God is slow. God isn't getting the message. And what it was, was God was using it to change an individual's life. Understand the final thing. Prayer is, involves more than we know. You think you're an expert on prayer? You're a dummy. We don't know how prayer works. All we know is we're called to do it. Let me, before you uh, close up and, and close your minds, think about this. I believe God knows the beginnings from the end. I believe that God's eternal purposes have been laid out before the foundations of the earth were ever established, that God's plans cannot be thwarted. God does not change. Now you answer me this, theologian. If that is the case, how can God then say that prayer changes things? I don't know. But what I do know is that prayer is effective That if we pray effective prayers with heartfelt desires like Elijah did, that it would not pray, it would not rain, and we would pray like that, that God will hold back the rains. How that all works theologically, uh, you go to seminary and you find out and you bring me the answer because that is one of the greatest questions of all time. But we know this, the prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. So what do we do? Even though we don't understand all of it, we are to what? Paul says it later in in his writings to the Thessalonica church, we are to pray without ceasing. Become a person of prayer, not one who just prays in the times of struggle, but one who prays, who communes with their God day in and day out to show the world and to show our Father in heaven that we've been a part of life change. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we praise you. Oh God, we praise you because you are a God who changes lives. Lord, we couldn't have done it on our own. We couldn't have figured out this life change. Can a leopard change its spots? No. Can can we get rid of the the stench of sin in our lives? No. Can we uh, resurrect ourselves to go from death to life? No, but you can. And you did. And so, Lord, we praise you as the God who gives second chances. Lord, we thank you as the God who gave his son to die for us. Lord, we don't deserve it. Even now, we find ourselves amidst us as looking back to the conversion of our souls. We find ourselves not communing with you. We find ourselves pursuing other things. Lord, we confess that to you this morning because what an opportunity is to bring it to our friend and to lay it at your feet. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that is known for prayer. Lord, that when we focus in on that, when we pursue that, it is then that we will be blown away by what you've done and what you are doing. So, Lord, ignite our hearts. We need it. We will not do this on our own. Ignite our hearts to become the people that you want us to be passionate about prayer. We give you the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.